In today's episode, we discuss A Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge. Not quite a sequel to Nightmare on Elm Street Part 1, according to John. We take a deep dive on what it means to be a sequel. And we also discuss friendship. What's the difference between friendship and family, between friendship and love? Freddy helps us to explore these concepts and more. Come and have a listen. John, let's dive right in. The movie we watched was A Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge, Mm -hmm. from good old 1985. That was the same year Marty McFly returned from 1955. He had his own little nightmare going on with uh, Doc Brown and and the concern of running into his... his present self or former mm-hmm. self. Mm-hmm. 85 was the right year for Marty. And this was the right year for Freddie to get his revenge. That's right. Yes, that's right. 84 came back in 85, took a short nap. However, in the movie, not to spoil our upcoming plot summary, but the Walsh's, the family live in the same house as Nancy from nightmare one. And in the movie two, they claim that it, that was five years ago. Hmm, good to know. Yeah. Yeah. So you have actual chronological time and you also have movie time. Mm-hmm. Wes Craven, to what extent was he involved with this so-called sequel? He wasn't involved at all. In fact, from my understanding, he skipped this as a possibility because he wanted to distance himself from the horror genre. He found that when going to parties of other directors and other people that when they found out he directed most horror movies, he felt shunned. Really? So he goes so he to was, parties with other directors. These directors don't know that he directed Nightmare on Elm Street or other <laughs> horror movies? Well, it wasn't clear what kind of parties he was going to. But when he said he went out socially, that when he uh, declared that he was a director and they found out that he was a director of horror movies or the horror movies that he directed specifically, maybe... He got a, a negative response to that, so he was trying to move away from horror movies. That's too bad. I mean, if I was at a movie with S. Craven, I would just ask him questions about Horace Pinker all night. All night. And actually, in looking at his movie list, I don't, he must have not gotten too far away from horror movies, because I don't see anything <laughs> other than horror movies listed here. Maybe he just on his... gave up on parties and started adopting yeah. more domestic pursuits. <laughs> Well, this movie was short, one hour, 25 minutes, directed by Jack Shoulder. Do I have the name right? That sounds right. I thought Freddy was largely absent from this movie compared to the first one and the title. There's really a change in the approach to the dynamics of the movie. Well, I can do a short plot summary, but Freddy was almost animated within the real life existence as opposed to occupying dream states as much. He, he really, he almost was like a magic man in this movie. He, he was an, an illusionist in certain ways. Hmm. He terrified the, the young main lead in sleep, but we mostly didn't see that. And then he was in and out of a, a semi real, semi not real imagined state. That's what it felt like to me. Yeah, he was on the sidelines, largely, and during these dreams, he would coax Jesse into murdering family members and friends and people that he knew. 
So it was it wasn't Freddie directly doing the terrorizing and the killing. It was Freddie recruiting Jesse to do so. Instead of terrorizing children or young teens in a dream state, he was controlling Jesse for him to carry out the tasks. Yeah. Sort of uh, Freddie finding his mentee. Yeah. So let me give a little short plot summary here. So Jesse moves into Springwood. His family occupies the house that was formerly occupied by the family from Nightmare on Elm Street 1. He is uh, kind of coming into a new high school, trying to, he's a little nervous as anyone might be. And by being in this house, Freddy Krueger is influencing him. And we'll kind of stop here for a moment and say that it appears to be that the reason why Freddy Krueger is influencing him within this house is because the glove, the Freddy Krueger glove is, I don't know, still in existence in the furnace of this house mm-hmm. because as they showed in this movie is that freddy krueger was killed at a power plant far away from this house so why is freddy manifesting here so it must be because of this magical object that is still in the furnace and so jesse's being influenced by freddy krueger essentially freddy is manifesting himself inside of jesse or vice versa really and jesse is then going out and carrying out these dirty deeds unknowingly. And that's basically the movie. And then Jesse's girlfriend later then exercises the spirit out of, out of Jesse. And well, it seems like everyone's happy, but then it has the same nightmare in Elm street. One ending where the young teens get into a bus, the bus takes off into the desert. Right. Mike, am, am I? Yeah. Just like it started on the, on the school bus. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we have Jesse and the girlfriend's name is Lisa. And yeah, there was a teenage couple in the first movie as well. But both of them were haunted by Freddy, whereas in this movie, it's only the Jesse. And Jesse himself isn't harmed by Freddy. He's just puppeted by Freddy. Yeah, it's a good point. I I didn't consider the fact that Jesse was the only one that was being influenced by Freddy. At the very end... When Lisa was going into the power plant, she saw dogs with children's faces on them and had some level of, she, she sort of had some delusions as she was in the power plant. So I guess closer to the core of Freddy Krueger, she started to see things that weren't there, some hallucinations. Yeah, those uh, dogs are pretty creepy. Yeah, the practical effects in this movie were right on. Yeah, and they did have that Wes Craven vibe, I thought, even though he wasn't directly involved. He was at a party. The The movie was on point, and as far as a... It sort of replicated the same feel as the first movie. The rules within the plot were different, but it felt like a sequel. But overall, the actual rules and the, and the storyline, it didn't feel like a legitimate sequel to me. How do you define the word sequel, John? What does it what does it take? You know, in our pursuits here of climbing this hill, we both need to find nuts, berries, and sequels. You're talking and about our, our hike here? Our hike, yeah. And I, I don't I don't necessarily place this within a sequel category. You know, if I was going to kind of cut out some definitions of sequels, here are three. 
we have the technical sequel. And I would put this in the category. Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2 is a technical sequel. We go from Part 1, and then we go to Part 2. This is the technical sequel. It's uh, inarguably what comes next in the sequence of this franchise. So you become the technical sequel just by having the number two in your title. Officially in the title. Yeah. Okay. okay. Then we have the spiritual sequel. Mm. So a movie that's near the same idea or near as the same feeling. And you're like, wow, these movies are pretty close and they kind of have a plot element that's similar kind of pushes across maybe um, an idea. Like I think a lot of zombie movies might fit in this category. There's similar plot elements that move a meta story along in different categories. So some spiritual sequels there, I would say. What kind of sequel are the Texas Chainsaw sequels that we've watched? Are they spiritual or merely technical? It's a good question. I'll give the third category. Oh, okay. And then if you want to add a fourth category, I'm, I'm totally up for that. Third category being a proper and genuine sequel. Mm. This is a movie that when viewed and seen, you're like, yes, this is, this is a legitimate carry on or a way of making the core elements of the first movie. It doesn't necessarily have to be first to second, could be second to third, but this is a, this is a proper genuine sequel. I'm struggling to see the difference between a spiritual sequel and a, and a genuine sequel. Is there a, a strong bright line there? I'm glad that we have movies that we can associate with this. So I remember that movie come true that we saw. It was, uh, you'll need to remind me a little bit. Okay. So it's a movie about how this young lady hasn't slept in a long time. And yes, then I she, remember now. Okay. <laughs> Didn't take much. And, uh, not going to summarize this movie and really get into it. One could look it up if they want to. I'd put this in a spiritual sequel for Nightmare on Elm Street. Mm. There are sort of elements of it that feel close to, but aren't, no one would say that come true is a sequel to Nightmare on Elm Street part one, mm. but it's a, maybe a spiritual sequel where there's, I would say come true is influenced by Nightmare on Elm Street part one to the point that one can see some parallels on it. Okay. So that's a spiritual sequel. Spiritual sequel. And this is the challenge facing us is I don't know what the proper sequel is to Nightmare on Elm Street Part 1. We, I'm not sure if we found it. But you don't think it's Nightmare on Elm Street 2? I think it's a technical sequel. Technical sequel. Okay. Mm -hmm. There's certainly more similarities, more same feelings between nightmare one and nightmare two than there are between nightmare one and come true is that correct i would agree if come true is a spiritual sequel to nightmare one then nightmare two must also be a spiritual sequel to nightmare one i would also agree with that so nightmare two is both a technical sequel and a spiritual sequel to nightmare one but not a proper sequel not a proper sequel <laughs> <laughs> it's possible and i haven't seen nightmare on elm street part three four five whatever i haven't seen the ones past this in a very long time so it's possible that one of those might actually be the sequel mm, the proper two. sequel. the Which proper I'm, sequel yeah chosen so can you give me an example of a movie that has a genuine sequel i thought you might ask me this question 
Which is why you prepared a list of dozens. <laughs> yeah, that's why. <laughs> but uh, I, there's many questions I considered you might ask. I, I, I um, let, we, let's just try this together. Actually, Superman one, Superman two, probably something along that lines. Where it's that line where it's maybe even within like the Marvel series or something like that, where it's the second movie legitimately picks up where the last movie left off, and it continues the 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 plot and continues the same rules. And you have the same hero, maybe that would be a a proper sequel. Under that definition, the same the same hero, and uh, just taking that component, we have seen so many movies where all the characters are killed, and the the final girl. We've talked about that trope. So, is it possible for such horror movies where every all the characters are murdered to have proper sequels because there's no opportunity to pick up with the same character? Okay, so so Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2 could have been a proper or genuine sequel if it maintained the same rule structure as the first one and the elements in it were compatible, which is, I guess is the same thing as having the same rule structure. The problem with Part 2 is they've changed the rules here. So Freddy Krueger has manifested himself inside of Jesse... Mm-hmm. Freddy Krueger is animating him in the real world. Freddy has removed himself quite largely from the dream state. I'm sure there's other sort of differences that you also might be able to come up with maybe on this. Uh, no, I think you hit the big ones that I had in mind. <laughs> Freddy, <laughs> Freddy doesn't do the deed. He coaches Jesse to do the deed or he inhabits Jesse while Jesse does the deed. So he's sort of taking the glove analogy freddie is the hand within the glove jesse is the glove yeah I, I see how that's a different rule structure he doesn't it's not really a nightmare on elm street like the first one where freddie was inhabiting the dreams of all these this group of friends it's really just a nightmare at jesse's house which happens <laughs> to be on elm street <laughs> and the nightmare doesn't involve freddie doing much the nightmare is just jesse waking up and murdering his coach and his friend and yeah in the first one, the main lead could grab something in her dream and pull it into reality. Mm. So she was the agent that moved things from dream to reality. What was an example of that? I know I remember that happening, but I can't remember too clearly what. She discovered this ability by grabbing onto Freddy Krueger's hat. And then, and then oh, when yeah. she woke up, she had it in her hand. And then that's how she actually defeated Freddy in the movie is by bringing him into the real state and, well, hate to say this, but Home Alone style, mm. destroying him by uh, setting up booby traps and exploding things and hammers falling from ceilings and such. Well, we can talk about that later, whether Home Alone 2 is a, a proper sequel to Home Alone. <laughs> what? I'd love to get, get back deeper into that. <laughs> right. And so in this movie, it seems Freddy has taken a, a different approach, which I'm fine with that. I'm not saying that you can't have modifications. It is a different director, so that's going to yeah. play a big role. And probably a different writer, too. It is a different writer. And so Freddie has already, he's like, like I said, he already kind of exists in a way. He's kind of a spiritual ghost. He's a ghost in the house, essentially, mm-hmm. as opposed to someone occupying a nightmare. He occupies the house in a spiritual sense, almost like as a magician man. And then he manifests himself this is, I think, the, the word exorcism as it related to Lisa's task at the end of the movie is that was 
deliberately chosen because Freddie has occupied Jesse's body. Freddie isn't really in his dreams or in other people's dreams on the street and, and it is terrifying a group of teenagers. He's occupying Jesse, animating him to do his deeds. So it's a completely different movie. You know, it's like it happens to be called Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2, technical sequel, and it has elements such as Nightmare on Elm Street 1 did, spiritual sequel, but the rule structures have changed significantly enough to where it isn't a proper sequel. Another example of Freddy haunting the house, being a being a spiritual presence in the house is the whole thing with the temperature of the house. House is very warm, especially at night, especially in Jesse's room. Mm-hmm. And there's one scene where the pet birds of the family are possessed and attack the family and explode into f- flames. All that yeah. happened in a waking state in the presence of the whole family. So that's another example of... Yeah, Freddy kind of being a a demon who inhabits this house. Right, perfect example, because the dad saw that, the mother saw that, the, the parakeet came bursting out of the cage somehow and attacked the father. So they weren't dreaming. They never had a, a dream at all about Freddy. They're just being tormented by this manifestation of him. So if elements like that, I'm thinking of the word haunted house, like haunted house as a narrative element a way to structure a narrative is that what you would call a core element or a feeling like with a spiritual sequel what is what are we to make of the haunted house motifs does this movie's use of the haunted house motif make it a spiritual or genuine sequel to other movies about haunted houses wow I like the way you're thinking about this, Brian. We might have discovered or have seen a proper sequel to another movie that we haven't identified yet. So we could have just watched the sequel to a movie we haven't even seen. That's right. We could have been, this could have been a spoiler to a movie we haven't seen yet. Is it possible that this, that the prequel to Nightmare on Elm Street 2 has not even been made yet? <laughs> I think that's entirely possible, and we may never discover the first movie of Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2. <laughs> um, so, can we go back to Texas Chainsaw Massacres? Yeah. Okay, I, so... so okay. I, I've spoken quite passionately about how different those movies are from one another. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, so I got a fourth yeah. category here. Okay, okay. There's, I, a fourth, I, there's a fourth kind of sequel. Okay. Well, I was, it was running my, in the background as you brought up this uh, dilemma. Is that that's a reimagining? I think mm, not a sequel, but a reimagining. Yeah, so not a remake, but a reimagining. Because so there's a, there's a fifth thing called a remake now. Yeah, but now we're getting out of a sequel territory. I think. Okay. Yeah, because I also I also had a knockoff as a possible. Category, <laughs> but so, yeah. So then we get to, into knockoffs, and the, and, the, and then we re, you know remakes. Now we're we're not doing sequels anymore, okay. but a, a reimagination of an original product or storyline, keeping those core elements and moving it into another version of itself, almost like a parallel universe type approach. That can I pro- can I pro- can I propose a term? I would love it. Uh, oh, homage. Oh, so so we have technical sequels, spiritual sequels, genuine sequels, three types of sequels. But then we have not sequels, but homage pieces of homage. So reimagining remakes and knockoffs. 
And you're putting this in a sequel category? No, I'm I'm saying that homage, ins- inspirational, you know, remix, uh, something like that is is um, what a re- re- reimagining a remake and a knockoff would would uh, have in common. Mm. No, I, I like it. The only problem is, is that how do we deal with the technical aspect that the movie title itself has a two in it or a three in it? Mm. You know, it's hard to ignore that because if you you talk to someone on the street and you say, hey, did you see the sequel to Texas Chainsaw Massacre? And they say Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. And you say, no, that's a that's an homage. Mm-hmm. Where, whereas the real sequel to Texas Chainsaw Massacre might have been Back to the Future. Depending on which kind of sequel you're looking for. <laughs> so it could be, okay, about this? It could be an, uh, an homage and a technical sequel. Mm. Yeah, that's tricky. I, yeah. I, I, I see what you're getting at. Mm-hmm. Basically, you, there's a value that you're assigning to genuine sequels. They're truer, more genuinely sequels than spiritual or technical, at least with technical. Right. I would definitely say that. Okay. I was going to opine that I liked the second one a, a little better than the first one. It was tighter. It was faster. It was cleaner. Mm-hmm. I thought the characters were, yeah, just uh, the plot was tighter. The action was quicker. I don't know what to what how that impacts our discussion about how to define sequels, but it obviously shared the main villain, if not any of the main victims. Mm-hmm. However, the main victim, Nancy, from the first she did reappear in the form of her diary and she instructed the diary instructed Lisa how to solve the problem of exercising Freddie from Jesse. Yeah, that's true. Okay. Well, you know, there's some vacillation here going on between whether we're correctly categorizing this because this feels like a bio piece. It's essentially a biography of Jesse. And maybe if we're able to, connect the dots here and allow for Freddie to fit within the rule structure by manifesting himself in the objective world, then I would give it permission to fall within a proper sequel. But there's a a gap there where you have to jump. How did the first movie resolve itself? Didn't everyone agree to not be afraid of freddy anymore because that's what fed him or or am i thinking of some other movie no that's correct he was eliminated through the power of thought maybe that weakened him or required him to change the rules through which he manifested in the world he was diminished and could only was confined to the walls of this one house and even this one teenager and th- and that's why he needed jesse to take the reins and do the killing himself because he had been unfeared into a diminished state. Yeah. So remember the beginning of the first movie, there's this sort of silent visualization of Freddy Krueger creating his claws. If we were going to talk to the writer here, the way this could be resolved is if at the beginning of this movie, you saw Freddy Krueger kind of like with his journal, like writing stuff in the journal. And he has like maybe an illustration of Santa Claus. And being like, okay, so if you believe in Santa Claus, then he exists. If you don't believe in him, he disappears. And he's kind of pondering this as a existential problem for him. And mm-hmm. then like Eureka, like he comes up with a, a solution to the Santa Claus problem. And then that's how he gets this idea about manifesting himself in Jesse. You know, he said that you have the 
body, I have the brain. So there's a a sort of like a shadowing or a um, a a structure there that he's created through that statement. But the jump on how to do that technically wasn't fully illustrated, at least for me. Maybe I'm asking too much. Maybe, maybe, yeah. And in that same line, you know, it's like the when you go to the mall and you have your your kid and you visit the mall Santa. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's kind of Jesse's role. He had to he had to be the mall version of of Freddy, so so Santa could exist. Maybe mm-hmm. that's the connection that Freddy made in his journal. That could be it. Yeah, that last yeah. page right before he. He leapt out of bed uh, yeah. and and just scampered down stairs, trying to figure you know figure out where Jesse's at. I wonder how he writes in his journal though with his scissor fingers. I guess he can take his glove off. Maybe he's left-handed. But doesn't he have the claws on both hands? I don't think so. I think he only has it on one hand. Really? Okay. Well, I'm not. I'm pretty sure it's just one glove. Although, I guess in the first scene, there's this. In the first movie, there's this scene where he's walking down uh, an alleyway and he has both arms outstretched and in his razor fingers are drawing across the the sides of the alley and making terrible sounds. So I could see why you might think he has two gloves, but I'm pretty sure he only has one. Mm. Jesse, the main victim in this movie, he has a lot of friends. He has a lot of good friends. Yeah, for, for someone who just came to a new school... Literally, in a matter of days, he's found a girlfriend. Yeah. And he's befriended Mr. Grady. Yeah. His, uh, his good friend at school through some fun little masculine or male, how would you call it? Sort of like a um, fraternal sort of behaviors. I don't know the best way of describing that. Yeah, I think Grady is the definitely the cool kid at school. Mm-hmm. And... Jesse's appearance is not auspicious. He looks sort of goofy. And there's a, a turn this movie makes where Jesse could easily have become the victim of bullying and social ridicule. But that really flips a 180-degree turn. Jesse is, yeah, quickly befriends Grady by standing up and not being the victim of his bullying. They suffer together under the punishment of coach Schneider, the baseball coach Mm -hmm. and through that way and, and physical shared physical punishment of coach Schneider, they develop a bond in their hatred of him and Jesse's girlfriend, Lisa. Yeah. He hasn't even unpacked the boxes yet. Like his dad's always hounding him to unpack his room. He's sleeping there with uh, a comforter and literally almost nothing unpacked. Mm -hmm. And yet he's developed uh, a romantic relationship and, a strong friendship with Grady. Yeah. He's an impressive social animal. Yes. Yeah. And doesn't look like he would be. So what's the role of friendship in this movie? How, how important are Jesse's friendships? The, the two that I've mentioned, what role does friendship play in the narrative structure of this so-called sequel? <laughs> I mean, in this particular movie, they're essential. The girlfriend, Lisa, exercises Freddy Krueger out of him, so saves his life. And Jesse leans on Grady immensely by Jesse asking Grady to observe him while he's kind of falling asleep. And, well, then some terrible tragedy occurs after that. But Yeah, it winds up killing Grady. Yeah. The... 
philosophical understanding of friendship. I, I read an article actually, mm. and uh, there, there's three main features of friendship, I guess, that philosophers have identified. Are you okay. ready for these? So let's do it. The the first thing is mutual caring. Mutual caring. So friends have to mutually care for each other. Okay, I'm writing it down. The second one is intimacy. So friends reveal intimate details to each other about their lives. And and the third key feature of friendship is shared activity. Shared activity. So thinking of Grady and shared mm-hmm. activity, the baseball games, the suffering under the evil coach Schneider and they go to lunch together in the cafeteria and they have classes together. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of shared activity there. Yeah. And they go to the same school. They do. They do. Intimacy. Maybe not so much more with more with Lisa than with Grady. Well, if we're talking about physical intimacy, for sure, there's a uh, more Jesse shares that more with Lisa, but the fact that Jesse feels comfortable going over to Grady's house and telling him to watch me, because I have this horrible experience when I dream. That's pretty revealing. And he admits that he it was he who killed the coach. So he confesses to a murder, which must be a strong sign of intimacy. Right. That's true. Yeah. I mean, I haven't told you about the people I've murdered. Yet. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, mutual caring. I think that Elisa's devotion to Jesse's well-being is remarkable. She goes so far in the exorcism scene to she's face to face with Freddie having a showdown on a catwalk above a furnace, I think. And yet she addresses not Freddie, but the Jesse within Freddie sort of urging him to take control or, or come forth, be summoned out of this Freddie manifestation that he's living under. And she goes so far as to kiss Jesse as Freddie in Mm. in the hopes that sign of intimacy will have some effect and Jesse will be able to spring forth, which winds up working. Yeah, it did work. It had a Ghostbusters feel to it. Mm. Remember at the end of Ghostbusters where Bill Murray's love interest bursts out of a a stone gargoyle? I I do. Are you saying that Ghostbusters is the spiritual (laughs) sequel? No. <laughs> you know, to be honest, with you, Ghostbusters has more in common with uh, Nightmare on Elm Street two than I think it does with Nightmare on Elm Street one. So there's some uh... there's a lot of question marks. <laughs> yeah, the, the person I liked the best in this movie was Coach Schneider, and I don't think he had any friends, just, <laughs> which is great because he just he just chewed his gum and went to his S and M clubs and then yeah. came to school and taught PE and didn't give a fuck about anybody. <laughs> there's i want to get to this friendship piece but as you bring up the coach is that schneider is that in thinking about this movie there's a a narrative element here that is uh, i don't know somewhat hidden like there's certain times where you can't tell what's reality what isn't reality okay so that's fine but this particular scene where coach schneider is uh going to an s&m club Oh, right. This is time off. Do what he needs to do. But then, but then there's, it, it leads into the scene where Jesse is at the high school again. The coach is there and the coach is like preparing like what looks like a jumping rope. So I'm thinking tying up. There's an S&M scene that's 
kind of manifesting here. And um, that's probably the most disturbing piece of the movie. Not so much that there might be some, you know, S&M or some sort of possible like homosexual scene. It was more that there's a coach, a grown man who's essentially taking advantage of a, a young teen within a school environment. And I don't know, that kind of went through fairly quickly. And the concern was that he killed his coach, but that might've been the one defensible murder in the movie. Yeah. Coach Schneider certainly derives satisfaction from imposing physically exhausting punishments on Grady and Jesse after their fight, for example, and some other transgression I can't think of. I don't remember the scene you're talking about. I, I thought that Jesse went to sleep and in his dream state, he wandered down to the club where Coach Schneider was. And then Coach Schneider, didn't Coach Schneider kind of <laughs> saw him in the club and mm -hmm. decided to take him to school? Coach Schneider takes Jesse to school. Exactly. No, I forgot so, what happened. I forgot what happened between that and the scene where Jesse or Schneider got murdered. Well, that's exactly right. So Jesse kind of falls into a dream state. Then he walks down to this S and M club, enters the club. He served a beer, and then Coach Schneider's there. And then it cuts to a scene where Coach Schneider is in his office and he pulls out jump ropes. So mm -hmm. I'm thinking tying someone up. Okay. And Jesse's in the shower stall taking a shower. And then at that point tennis balls and, and medicine balls <laughs> start flying off the walls. And, and that ultimately is disabling to coach Schneider. And then at some point the coach is tied up to a shower stall and then Freddie glove comes out and, and tears through his back. And that's how he dies. But before that, the towels manifest and start <laughs> smacking his rear end. Right. Exactly. Uh, but point being is that, how did they get to that scene? I mean, how did they get to that situation? It must have been either that Jesse sort of seduced the coach into doing this. I'm not giving the coach an out here. I'm just thinking about how this might have, how this scene might have played out, or the coach convinced Jesse to come back to the gym. Either way, there is a inappropriate event mm -hmm. that's going to happen where the coach, a grown man, is taking advantage of his student possibly a minor, uh, in a sexual way. And, yeah. you know, if, if, if any scene would play out where Jesse would seem at least defensible in his actions, this would be one. The other murder scene being that Jesse murdered his, his friend, Grady friend, we'll get back to friend. That's a little bit more difficult to defend. I would imagine. Is coach Schneider, the only non- teen victim in no that's not true because in the first movie the mom got done in by freddie yeah the mom is burnt on a bed mm. and then is kind of sucked into the bed but at the very end the mom is there and the main lead daughter gets into a car and kind of played out the same as the end of this movie but then the mom gets pulled through the front door window but Anyways, not a lot of murdering in this movie, actually, but more terrorizing at the pools, pool terror terrorization going on. But <laughs> as far as the friendship <laughs> thing goes, it's an interesting discussion here. You have mutual caring, intimacy, sh uh, shared interests or shared activities. Kind of sets the climate for a friendship, but doesn't really get at the tenets of friendship. Really? It, 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 well, I feel like 
these are the things that would lead to a friendship, but they don't really speak about the mechanics of the friendship existing and the, I would say, the motivations of those being in the friendship. So shared activities or so like shared activities and such is a temporary thing. I might have an interest with this person who is Grady and my name is Jesse and we happen to be on the baseball team or we happen to be at school together. We graduate. We're not on the baseball team anymore. We're not at school anymore. Have we ceased being friends? And so it seems like um, a feature, but not a requirement. So I mm. developed my own little grouping here, which wow. I think speaks more towards. I'm gonna I'm gonna step over the the masters of philosophy and, and so propose. so so if to, to to frame this as a basketball game, you're in Aristotle's like he's under the net and he's like trying to stop you from scoring, and you're just like Michael Jordan over oh, your knees are like above his shoulders, and you're just slam dunking <laughs> on Aristotle. Yeah, the saying of something like. I can see far because I stand on the shoulders of giants is what Aristotle <laughs> is saying about me right now. <laughs> so uh, I, I'm going to make a long list of numbers because I figure you're going to have at least four different. <laughs> I got very, four. Very, I have four. <laughs> very similar sounding uh, definitions here. Yeah. So I say that there's this one major piece of it. Essential attribute is what I'm categorizing this as. And it almost stands on its own. So it's the existence of the relationship itself. This would include that I have the best interest of my friend at heart, and I want to see him or her do well. That is the key piece here and supersedes all other pieces or situations within a friendship. So if, if you have your friend's best interest at heart, that's what's most important. Best interest at heart, and I want to see him do well or her. Mm. Benevolence. So, yep. so they're kind of playing off of each other. One could just stand on its own. If you had to pick one, it would be I have uh, his or hers best interest at heart. All right. From there, we have sort of a, the climate of the situation, and this would include the shared activities. So what I was sort of saying is a durability of interests. So not just an interest that we play baseball together, but an interest over time in certain things or certain ways of being or just a just a, a durable aspect of interests or potential interests. Okay, so that's a climate piece. Now there's a rule setting here, which is around communication. So there's a trust in communication. I can say things at times which may be offensive or maybe one might even say inappropriate or truthful. And there's a acceptance which kind of hinges on this best interest at heart, but within communication that the things that I say at times won't be accurate and at times may be misinterpreted or may be honestly rude and, and inappropriate. And that's okay because we have a rule setting here where permission can be granted to each party within this duplex of this back and forth of communication. And uh, the last piece here, which is critical, is the capacity of ego there has to be an available resource from each party who is putting energy into this relationship and at times this capacity will ebb and flow there'll be times where i don't have the capacity right now to continue the relationship at its pacing previously but at a future point i might have the capacity again so this is a this is an ebb and flow type experience, 
but I also have to have the capacity in my ego to see the best interest in my friends, despite how it may affect me or how I might be jealous of said friend. So maybe there's a scene where I see my friend buy a home and he or she seems quite happy in it and I don't have a home. And so then for a moment there, my capacity, my ego capacity isn't present. And so then I might have some negative thoughts about my friend and maybe I might say some nasty things to them because my ego has lost its capacity. So there's the ebb and flow. But back to the rule setting as trust of communication, then my friend in this scenario would have a understanding to my lack of capacity, my lack of ego capacity, and the durability of interest. And he or she has the best interest of me at heart. And so these kind of play out in parallel at multiple levels of intensity over time, which will then create a durable friendship. That makes a lot of sense, John. I can see Aristotle shuddering under the weight of this giant that's on his shoulders. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's that's exactly right. That's exactly yeah. right. I, I think another just a, a po possible factor in friendship is inertia. Mm. Like physics. Do you, do you know about inertia? I'm familiar. Yeah, it's this, this idea that I, objects in motion tend to stay in motion and objects at rest <laughs> tend to stay at rest. So there's, mm -hmm. especially with long-term friendships, there's a, there's just, it just keeps going. There's habits that aren't really explicitly willed anymore. There's just kind of a, a, a communication back and forth. That's just habitual. And there's certain activities that are habitual and there's um, the, the, the object is in motion and there's enough habitualized ritual behavior that it just sort of automatizes itself, automates itself. And all these things happen, the, the mm -hmm. communication and the shared interests and, and so on. But it's just been going on so long that I think it's almost like a family dynamic at that point. You, you sort of take it for granted and don't really do much besides the occasional flip of the steering wheel, you know? Hmm. A little trivia fact. Hmm. Do you know um, what uh, ship is unsinkable? No. The Titanic? Our friendship, Brian. Our oh, friendship. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Mm -hmm. Well, that's really sweet, John. Yeah. Another issue with philosophers have struggled and debated, obviously in vain, waiting for you, uh, <laughs> is what's the difference between friendship and love? Because all these things that both Aristotle and you standing on Aristotle's <laughs> shoulders have said is uh, those are the same things we want in a, in a love relationship, don't we? Benevolence and shared interests and trust and, and so on is a lover, just someone who you have all those things with. So therefore they're a friend and you also just have sexual intimacy, something like that. Or, or is there some other magic um, well, don't say magic, but some other element that beyond just sexual activity that distinguishes love from friendship. Right. I think there's a biological element here, a serotonin type experience where at the point of orgasm, there's a release of chemistry in the body, which results in some form of pair bonding. 
as uh, the Terminator might say, just to quote uh, another famous person. <laughs> <laughs> is, is he getting on the, your shoulders now? Or? <laughs> and I have a lot of flexibility as it relates to whether you sleep with your friends or not. I, I believe that you can have a friend in a friend category or an acquaintance in an acquaintance category or honestly a complete stranger that you have a sexual connection with one time or many times and they don't have to fit within a friend or a lover or, or love category. So I hear this array of human relationships, which are trying to be put into buckets. And I say, that's a fool's errand. Mm. Um, yeah. So no, no buckets, even, nope. even though you had all the buckets for your different sequels. <laughs> yeah. I, no, I, I find it interesting that our culture and somehow we're going to tie this back to Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2. But <laughs> our culture views a love relationship as the ultimate manifestation of individuality, right? Your your life is somehow not full and has not been, uh, has not come to its apex until you've had a fulfilling love relationship. Whereas you could have many, many, many excellent friendships. That's still not good enough. Mm -hmm. And if the only difference is between a friendship and this pinnacle of romantic relationship that, that represents the pinnacle of life. If the only difference between those two is sexual activity, which as you've just said, can be conducted with people who you don't consider friends. It's, it seems like a strange cultural prioritization. Yeah. I have a, another theory on that. So I think that this is all, I think this is, um, that is a fear of loneliness. So if I see, I see someone out and they are married, then there's a, I, I've bestowed some level of success in that they aren't feeling a sense of loneliness because they have attached themselves to another human being. You could go further and just say they have a functional status that, that allows them to maintain a, a relationship over time. But having known people in terrible marriages that, that maybe back to your momentum or your theory on that i maintain the relationship because it already existed and i just step into the next day and it continues to exist in parallel but i think that if i met someone and i would probably extend this across most people if i met someone and they had many friendships or appeared to be in a state in which they did not appear lonely then sympathy would not be placed on that person if i'm in a marriage which i think society would deem as better or of success. So I totally agree with what you're saying. I could also be incredibly lonely because I sit in my basement all day. And when I hear my partner upstairs walking on the wooden floor, it pains me just to hear her in the, in the house. And so then I'm not only in a state of loneliness, but in despair. And so the marriage in itself uh, has negative value. Mm. And, and I'm actually more lonely than I would be if I was just amongst friends. Yeah. So I think the, I think the loneliness pieces what's the undercurrent that people make a shorthand statement of when they see someone with a marriage that they are then therefore not lonely and successful socially. And you mentioned the jealousy that you might feel when a friend is successful. You gave the example of them buying a home. You have to overcome that to overcome that jealousy to rebalance the friendship and jealousy and other Negative problematic emotions can be even more active in a love relationship than they are in a friendship. 
the sexual activity presents so many pitfalls mm-hmm. that I, c- I could see a friendship being a better relationship in some sense than a marriage. Yeah, no, I totally agree. But I do hear, as you kind of introduce this idea that the outwardly eye of society wouldn't agree with you, that it would require a certain review of situation that isn't afforded to the person who isn't married, and they have to essentially create a defense in a way, if they felt it necessary, to the uh, social eye, which would categorize them as unsuccessful or unfulfilled. Yeah, which brings us back directly to Coach Schneider. I mean, he just gives a a finger, a middle finger to the world, and Mm -hmm. he can chew his gum and go to his S&M club and punish his students and just be totally fulfilled about it. He might be the happiest man uh, in this movie. (laughs) And he has no friends. (laughs) That's exactly right. That's exactly right. He just has weird sexual encounters with strangers at an S&M bar. Well, if we could get a little abstract and suggest that he is his own friend. He has uh, dedicated himself to the multiple sides of himself. I think that that's a fine place to leave this, John. Yeah, well, I would I would like to give credit to the friendship joke to Norm MacDonald. Norm uh, MacDonald. Uh, Where that, is I he still, these I, days? He's dead. Oh, goodness. All right. Well, this has been... Uh, Quite an experience. Yeah, as always. And it's hard to know what to make of your theory about sequels, you know, where where this where this particular podcast episode, you know, really follows from. Maybe our, our viewers out there can leave some comments and let us know which episode this is the genuine sequel to. <laughs> maybe it's uh maybe it's Link. Who knows? <laughs> Maybe it's to an episode we have yet to record. That could be. <laughs> These arrows could go all over the podcast. I wonder right. what we're going to talk about before we talk about this episode. <laughs> well, we'll we'll continue to search these hills for sequels and uh, and uh, our next meal. They were equally as important. Yeah, and for the meal we had yesterday as well. All right. All right. Uh, Good day. Good day, sir.